Hi, my name is Evan. I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And this is If the Shoe Fits, Star-Crossed, a new season of an old podcast. This season is about Romeo and Juliet. It's been a hot minute since we last podcasted. Mm-hmm. We're getting back in the flow of it. Mm-hmm. We're rusty, but raring to go. Right. So why Romeo and Juliet? Well, it's a classic story. Mm-hmm. Like Cinderella, it's been told many, 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 many times. The interesting thing I think that's different about Romeo and Juliet uh, from Cinderella, there's, there's a lot of differences, but I think one of them is that Cinderella, at some point in the past couple decades, began to be viewed as a problematic story. Um, and you see a lot of adaptations really trying to like strike away from elements of the original and hew their own path. Whereas I think that Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. as a story template, is still fairly beloved. Mm-hmm. And there are probably more straight across adaptations that aren't um, as deconstructive. Right. Although we're still going to try to push that envelope. Totally, totally. And deal with some less conventional some less conventional adaptations yeah uh, of the story i think another thing too is you know romeo and juliet it's such a staple of so many of Mm -hmm. our lives i mean oh yeah i mean i have a hard time even trying to figure out how many adaptations of romeo and juliet i've already seen i know i mean i know i've seen it on stage multiple times i know i've seen adaptations of it on stage i know i've seen um various screen adaptations of it Mm -hmm. although we found a good list of things that i have not seen right for the most part um to to look at plus it's referenced in so many songs so many books so many Mm -hmm. movies like Mm -hmm. it's kind of been a constant in pop culture for so long yeah and i think that's one of the reasons that it makes sense for us is that there is a cultural touchstone have you seen a lot of adaptations of romeo and juliet I have seen quite a few. I've never... It's one of the shows that I've not seen live, actually. Really? I've never seen a live Romeo and Juliet. Oh, I've seen multiple live Romeos and Juliets. And it's interesting. I feel like I've also seen a, a couple live adaptations of mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet. Stories that are like... That are pulling something from it. Right. Well, I find it interesting because at least... where, Especially where I went to college and where I live, like, I think the common feeling, especially on Romeo and Juliet, is it's done so much that we're not going to do it. Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many other Shakespeare works that haven't been done or not done as much as Romeo and Juliet that it'd be, like, why add to the many productions of Romeo and Juliet there already are? Yeah, that's funny. I had to read it in high school. Mm -hmm, Same. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that was my first exposure or not. I feel like there was a field trip that I maybe did before then to see like a local regional production as well. But yeah, but I'm not really sure what my first exposure to the story was. I mean, I think like even like on the playground in elementary school, people were, some class had talked about it or some kid had seen a version of it and was doing the like, wherefore are there Romeo scene? Well, it doesn't help that if you're on a high space and somebody's on a low space, the first thing that people do is go, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Right, right. You go, Romeo, I have the high ground. <laughs> have you seen that meme? I have not. Oh. Yeah, I think, the, I think that's the thing. I mean, I think we even said it in an early episode of the last season that like what makes a Cinderella story a Cinderella story is not just that there's you know, a person of uh, of low status who makes a high status love match. Mm-hmm. But also that, like, there's a shoe and there's, like, that you point to the shoe and go, she lost right. it, and that's how it's going to happen, right, you right, know. Right. And maybe uh, some sort of magical friend or something like that. Whereas with a Romeo and Juliet story, like, I think you can have a star-crossed lover's story. But if you put them on a balcony, you're like, okay, that's a Romeo and Juliet story. Mm-hmm. Intentionally, that's a Romeo and Juliet story. But, even, but even then, like two star-crossed lovers of different different types of people is obviously a Romeo and Juliet story. I think it's the easier one to, like... To, if we're comparing it to Cinderella, I think it's the easier one to at, adapt because you can just have two different types of people... Yeah, yeah, and I think... We'll, ...falling in love, and... I think we'll keep coming back to this, but I think that what makes it a Romeo and Juliet story is that the two people are from different communities that do not want them to end up together. Mm. You know, like, I feel like I could hand wave some of the, like, specifics of 
of this murder or that murder, and even probably the balcony thing, if it's two different communities and and they are not supposed to end up together. I mean, we're going to look at a couple this season where they do end up together, which I think will be a real question of, of is that a Romeo and Juliet story? As long as there's a balcony, I'll be okay. <laughs> oh, I think we're going to see some balcony-less adaptations. No! <laughs> I think one of the big questions people are always asking is, what is Romeo and Juliet the story about? You know, like, I think mm-hmm. that, I think it, it gets pitched as a romance or as a tragedy. I think I've heard people make the argument that the point of the story is about the two communities, that the this act of tragedy helps them to to come back together and to not have the, the feud anymore. What do you make of all that? Well, I think it's going to be interesting, especially as we look over the adaptations this season, which area they're going to go for. Is it going to be about the communities? Is it going to be about the love? Is it going to be about these two kids? Like, what is it going to be about? And I think, especially, spoiler alert, we're looking at our list. I think we're going to have a few of those where it's going to be more about the communities. And I'm excited about that. Yeah. We're all buckled in for Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yes. <laughs> it will be the best one. It'll be our ever after. Uh, yeah, that'll be, that'll be what it is. <laughs> well, should we talk about our first Romeo and Juliet then? We should. We should. Okay. So, our first ever adaptation of Romeo and Juliet is Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet from 1968. A.K.A. the one that you probably watched in high school. I had never seen this before. Really? Really. I was aware of it from people who had seen it in high school classes who were like, it's an old movie, the guy looks like Zac Efron. That was sort of all I knew about it. Oh, right. and, and, and what I recently just found out is an urban legend, which is that the female lead of the movie, the actress who plays Juliet, was so young that she couldn't watch it when it came out because she has a topless scene, which right. apparently is not true. Um, but the film's publicity was used her youth as a marketing tactic, mm-hmm. which is odd. Used both their youth, really. Right. Because well, he was 17. And what I didn't realize is that this is the first first film adaptation of Shakespeare to use actors that were actually near the characters' ages, which is interesting and I think totally works in this mm. movie. Other fast facts about it is that at the time it was the most financially successful film adaptation of a Shakespeare play. This is right from the Wikipedia. Popular amongst teenagers, won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, and was nominated for Best Director and Best Picture. Should have won Best Picture, probably. And it's the last time that a Shakespeare adaptation was nominated for Best Picture up, into, up through today. Uh, and then both of the Leeds uh, won Golden Globe Awards for, quote, most promising newcomer. Hmm. Leonard Whiting plays Romeo. Olivia Hussey plays Juliet. This is the most famous film either of them have ever worked on, though they both continued acting and had careers after this. Mm-hmm. You'd seen this movie before. Yes, I had. I, I saw it in high school. I oh. think we watched the uh, Leonardo uh, Romeo plus Juliet in high school. Which is, I always find that interesting mm-hmm. when people say they watched that in high school. Because it's like, I I don't know, I, I find that this one, like, I get it because you want to keep kids entertained and, like, you want to make sure they're watching the film. But, like, I feel like this one, educationally, would be the better one to watch. Well, and my assumption was that since it was, like, the high school one, it was going to be the most, like, faithful possible adaptation because to keep the season a little shorter, we're not we're not reading the original text and we're not watching a film version to play. This is where we're starting. It was not the most like, faithful, straight-across-the-board 
Romeo and Juliet that I could imagine. No. I mean, not only are there significant cuts to keep Definitely. the runtime down, but there's also some real, like, directorial point of view stuff happening. It's not just, like, here's what Shakespeare was trying to do. There's a an intention from the direction, which I like a lot, actually. I think right. it, it really helps the story when it's guided by a strong director mm. who is having, an, a, like, an effect on it. And right. not, not just putting it up as it is. I think the way the film starts is a perfect example of that. Mm. Because the... Um, Shakespeare play starts with a like minor brawl between a a small number of like young Capulets and Montagues, and then I think some of the like elders get involved. Right. Once they see that this brawl has started, but Franco Zeffirelli's brawl is like the entire city is fighting in the streets. (laughs) It's huge, and also immediately, you know, it's 1968. I wasn't sure what to expect from a Shakespeare adaptation in terms of cinematography, but it uses these uh, like moving camera shots, like when the prince is, is riding in to break up the fight, there's this like point of view shot from his horse that right. makes it feel very like immediate and visceral is the wrong word, but mm. but it feels active. It doesn't feel like stolid and staid and mm. and Shakespearean. It feels um, lively in feel, a way that I think like helps you're in a lot. this world. Totally. In a way. Yeah. And also because it was the late sixties, it definitely has a lot of those uh, like filming styles where a lot of random zooming ins and Mm -hmm. yeah the one thing that is happening in this film that i guess is a 60s thing that i think detracts from that liveliness is that there are different accounts of why this happened but most of the film's dialogue was recorded adr which is which is recorded after the fact and then put back in so there's a real disconnect between you know what's happening on screen and how the characters sound for mm-hmm. a lot of the movie and like some people say it was the lights were too loud or the cameras were too loud or you know whatever it was but a lot of the film has been been recorded over afterwards after the fact i mean most of it you cannot even tell i couldn't tell for most of it there are definitely a couple spots where i was like oh you are obviously mouthing to something or this does not fit mm-hmm. what you are saying mm-hmm but for the most part, I think they did a pretty good job. Like, I felt like most of the film I could tell that it was ADR. Oh. It was like, this does not sound right. <laughs> so, like in most adaptations of this story, we get introduced to the idea of this conflict first. Mm-hmm. Then we meet uh, Romeo and Juliet separately. I do want to say one more thing before we continue. The big fight was probably the f- one of the funniest moments because <laughs> just immediately you have the leaders of the house just screaming their last names. Capulet! Which... Montague! Which is super helpful. Oh, well, and also, like, Zeffirelli's not too precious with the language. Like, he, like some adaptations of Shakespeare, they're like, we can only do things that Shakespeare wrote and we can't add anything. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of, like, little, like, you know, come on, come on, or, you know, things that have been added um, between Shakespeare's lines mm-hmm. to... The nurse was very guilty of that. Mm-hmm. Which I don't mind at all. No, I did not mind. It It added more realism to it. Right, things flow better. I also liked the like yelling the names thing earlier in the big fight because it helps you understand the color coding that's right. happening, which I think is funny, and a lot of productions do this, and I miss it when productions don't do color coding or make it clear who's who. So in this film, the Capulets wear warm colors, mm-hmm. and the Montagues wear cool colors, mostly. Mostly, yeah. Like significant characters are always in the color palettes, but then like in a party scene or whatever, there'll be it'll be a mixed palette. It'll be right. people all over. The confusing thing I think is that the prince also wears warm colors. And I feel like he should be a neutral party. I mean he has warmer colors, but like he kinda has a little bit of both. He has like the dark blue mm. over the red. Oh, okay. So he's kind of like in the middle. <laughs> and there there are times when they really like think about their color coding like i think when um when julia gets married she's changed into like a purple outfit so mm-hmm. she's kind of like doing both which i think is interesting yeah and there are other times that it just kind of goes out the window but it's, it's more important the first half of the story when you have to identify people quickly right by the second half you kind of know what everyone looks like yeah so i think it's used well in that way mm-hmm. i saw a play adaptation where they didn't do any color coding you know like you shouldn't have to but also i found it confusing i mean it's a part of visual storytelling like you need to know distinguish who is who and what your characters who side which character is on you know well it doesn't even need to be color coding i mean it could be like style of dress or Mm. something like that 
do a Romeo and Juliet where the Montagues are goth and <laughs> the Capulets are preppy. <laughs> oh, God. Romeo, goth little emo boy. He's already halfway there. He is. I mean, I mean, in this production especially, <laughs> he shows up, like, holding a flower and, like, staring dreamily at things, mm-hmm. you know. Staring dreamily at Benvolio. They do have a bit of a, like, gaze back and forth thing going on. Mm-hmm. That's J-Z-E, but it could go either way. <laughs> um, which I'm not mad about. No. It's not the only time that Romeo will have sexual tension with another man on screen. Later he has, like, there's a moment where I'm like, Does, is Mercutio into him? Right. And we'll get there. But we, So we meet Romeo, he's mopey. Benvolio yeah. tells him that there was a fight. And right. like, cheer up, Charlie. And then we meet Juliet and her family. And we learn that she is not yet 14 and that they want her to get married. <sighs> and it's a different time. Yeah. Um, there's a, um, a BuzzFeed Unsolved interaction that I always think about. Mm-hmm. One of them was like, well, it was a different time and it's easy to condemn from our uh, from our perspective. And the other one pipes up and goes, and we do condemn wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel that. you know, right, like, no, like I, th- I think we that. do condemn wholeheartedly mm-hmm. um, that she's a 13-year-old. And they, the line is, younger than she are a happy mother's maid, which, yikes. Oof. Uh, Who says that? Is that the nurse that says that? I think the nurse says that. Yeah. yeah. The nurse is terrific in this movie. She's fun. She's fun. She goes a lot of oh and ooh, and she makes uh, a lot of noises. But she's like, she's also very giggly. Like, she's having a good time most of the time. <laughs> she's having a grand old time. Yeah. She is milking it for all it's worth. She is, but we love her. Frankly, so are the leads. The leads are really milking it. Yes. Some of the acting is a little broad and Shakespearean, but they have some really lovely, like, intimate moments where that falls away. But there are some times where you're like, you are acting Shakespeare right now. Well, when you're saying text as grand and beautiful as that, it's going to... Mm. It's a little difficult to make Shakespearean text, like, subtle. Oh, but some people are so good at it, though. I mean, David Tennant, I think, is one of those actors who can really pull off Shakespearean text. Right. Well, also, this was the 60s, and a lot of things were a little bit well, right. bigger uh, in the 60s. Well, right, and this this was sort of a groundbreaking production of Romeo and Juliet because it was young people because um, it was it broke away from having you know Sir Lawrence Olivier play Hamlet at the age of 50 something right he's in this movie too a little bit uncredited uh, uncredited he reads the prologue at the end and the epilogue at the, at the beginning switch that um, <laughs> and he also uh, overdubs uh, Mr. Montague I believe yes yeah because Montague was an Italian actor and I guess Strong Italian accent. Strong Italian accent. Italians can't sound like Italians. Right. Or his, or his shoes were too loud or something. Something made it. Oh, no, no. The, there was a, a reference in the IMDb page that Laurence Olivier had to record his dialogue, which is all like dubbing, barefoot because his shoes were too loud, which makes me think he was like walking in place or something. I can't fathom why <laughs> his shoes are making noise. He wore shoes with bells on, I guess. I guess. If anyone could wear shoes with bells on, I feel like Laurence Olivier. Mm-hmm. Would be one. So the Capulets are having a party. Right. Which uh, Romeo and his gang of lads are going to crash. Now, there's no reason that they're going to crash. Well, there usually is, and they cut it in right. this film. They cut Roseline. They, Roseline does get mentioned later. So the, the setup, as I remember it, is that Romeo has a crush on a girl named Rosaline, who is... A Capulet. A cousin of the House of Capulet. Staying in the family. A what? He's he's always he's always trying to go for a cat. Oh, staying in the family. I thought you were right. saying that Rosaline was a stain on the family. Well, <laughs> I'm sure she is. We never see Rosaline in most adaptations. I've never met the girl. Yeah. So there's usually some scene where Benvolio is like, "I'll show you some hot ladies, and you'll forget about Rosaline." In but in Shakespearean language, obviously. And they're still Capulets, so yeah. And they they intercept a invitation, and they show up masked. It's a mask ball. Mm-hmm. In this one, like, half the people are masked and half are not. It's like real life. Whoa. <laughs> That's deep, man. <laughs> but okay, wait, before we get to the party, though, is the Queen Mab speech. Which is the famous speech. And most adaptations that use Shakespeare's text do it. And I have heard it many times. Mm-hmm. And I could not tell you what it means. 
Mercutio says the speech. Romeo's like, I had a dream last night. And then Mercutio's like, I had a dream last night too. I dreamt of Queen Mab. And he goes in this long thing about how Queen Mab is is a fairy and yeah. inspires people to different kinds of action. Right. And in this production, it's played like like it starts off with all the lads being like, oh yeah, Queen Mab. And then it, like he like runs to the middle of a courtyard and starts yelling about it. And it's like, oh, okay, you're, like, you're not well. This Mercutio is not likable. He's not likable. He's, but it's unclear like what his deal is. Uh, in this scene, at one point, he has a very like close, intimate forehead to forehead moment with Romeo, and then like looks like he's going through it somehow. And I was like, does he have a crush on Romeo? Like, is that why he's not well, or is is he uh, mentally unwell mm-hmm. somehow? And it's unclear. But he's he certainly is like acts out and is an asshole mm. uh, later in the story. And I don't know that it's a requirement that we like Mercutio, necessarily. I mean, when you're the supposed best friend of the lead main character... I thought Benvolio was the best friend. They're both best friends. They're all best friends. They're all best friends. The group is really, like, bro-y in a fun way. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that about it. Um, That they've got this sort of, like, masculine, like, joking with each other thing going on. But it's interesting, because in contrast to the Romeo we get... Especially in this version, in his solo, like, soliloquies, like, he would not be friends with these people. He would not be friends with Mercutio. Like, yeah. he, it does not make sense that they are friends. Because he just seems like a more sensitive... I th- people, he maybe has depth. He has different sides to him. Because I think he enjoys the, like, masculine camaraderie of it all, also. And I think you see that in this scene, that they're kind of, like, joking back and forth with, with each other. Mm. I just think Romeo is more of a soft boy, you know? Yeah, but could he be a soft boy in 14 Hominaham, Italy, publicly with his friends, right? So maybe it's a maybe it's a commentary mm. about toxic masculinity. Maybe. It's very ahead of its time. Well, I mean that's isn't that also the entire point of the feud? It's these two fathers that don't like each other and mm-hmm. Toxic yeah. masculinity really does play a whole part of this entire movie because it's also what does Mercutio in spoilers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Oh, also, so they get to the party. All of the invading Montagues, the bros, mm-hmm. are wearing masks, but they're also still wearing color-coded clothing. <laughs> so you can kind of tell. You, well, yeah, you can, of course you can tell. Well, but also like Tybalt, who is um, Juliet's cousin brother cousin brother he's a member of the Capulet I think he's a a cousin I think in West Side Story they're brother and sister yeah recognizes Romeo's voice and then like is like that's Romeo (laughs) like like they know each other well enough that he can (laughs) recognize his voice despite the fact that he's wearing blue clothes I guess a lot of people are wearing a lot of different colored clothing right but still Tybalt in this one played by Michael York who if you're fans of the Austin Powers series is Basil in the Austin Powers series. Oh. I thought you were going to say if you're friends of Cabaret, he's Clifford Cabaret. Well, he's also Clifford Cabaret, Cabaret, but... I like this Tybalt. I do like this Tybalt a lot. I think he was very good for it. Yeah. Tybalt doesn't have a lot to do in the story. He freaks out at the party because he's like, there are Montagues here, and they and I'm upset about it. And mm-hmm. then later he uh, fights Mercutio and dies. Kills him, yeah. Yeah, d- d- kills him and dies. Spoilers. Yeah, spoiler. But at this party, you know, there's there's some dancing. Well, Romeo and Juliet have like a love at first sight moment. Yeah. Their eyes meet, which is interesting. I feel like love at first sight is one of those ideas that we've stopped fictionalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, then a man starts singing and Romeo and Juliet both like make their way behind the crowd and try to like get to each other. Mm-hmm. And Romeo like ducks behind a um, like a curtain and like grabs her wrist and starts whispering to her and she reacts but there's also like a man standing right next to her and I'm like if she can hear because he's not really whispering he's kind of right. just talking softly yeah. if she can hear him surely the man standing behind her can also hear him whatever happened to that man does he also fall in love with Romeo maybe maybe what we'll happened to that man we'll never know I also love that uh, another thing that that we just don't fictionalize anymore that we don't depict as part of love anymore is that Romeo's like, it is so good to meet you. Can we kiss now? <laughs> Can we kiss now? Like, they've they've fallen in love with their glancing. And now he's, his, like, whole... I mean, this is a famous bit of dialogue, but the whole mm-hmm. bit of dialogue is about how they should be kissing. Right. Well, I liked 
what I liked about Olivia Hesse, who plays Juliet, is that she played, like, an actual teenager. She got nervous. She, like, walked away. Like, she had her moments where she was like, I don't know about this. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Confusing teenage feelings. Well, and this more or less leads into the balcony scene, um, and which is so cute. Like, they, they're both, like, playing super naive lover well. They're both, like, kissing with this, like intensity like they don't quite know what they're doing but they're very into it Mm -hmm. yeah it's a super cute balcony scene right i thought big balcony too oh yeah yeah it's a balcony with like a whole walkway attached which allows for a lot of like cool blocking opportunities of her like running along and him like like climbing next to her so that Mm -hmm. they can keep up with each other racing back and forth and right it's cute it's it's i think it's well staged i think it's well acted mm-hmm. i think it's a nice romantic interpretation of this scene i, I think that in this movie the, the i'm sure you'll agree the romance is really the heart of this movie definitely and i think that like the, the romance is the strongest part and these two in their like one-on-one scenes are so cute together mm-hmm. like it's acted really well and filmed well and mm-hmm. those parts of it are stronger i think than some of the other parts of the movie mm. and Romeo is such a puppy about everything oh very much so they also play a lot of the um like lines that i'm used to being jokes pretty straight you know like there's a bunch of lines that that have multiple meanings that you can like pull a sexual meaning out of and the two big ones that stick out to me are both played without any sense of um double entendre Mm. there's one in the balcony scene where romeo calls her back and he's like that would leave me so unsatisfied and she goes what satisfaction canst thou have tonight hmm. and a lot of people are like are like do that with like a pause and a significant look and a you know like a like a get it <laughs> i'll tell you what kind of satisfaction he can have tonight um but that is at, but that doesn't happen here she just was like asks him and he's like the exchange of thy loves faithful vows or whatever um the line is and there's a similar moment near the end with the friar where he says, um, so, okay, so the line is, uh, young men's love then lies not truly in their hearts, but in their eyes. And a lot of people put a pause in it, so it's like, young men's love then lies not truly in their hearts, but in their eyes. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And that also doesn't happen here. It also gets played pretty straight. And I don't know if, like, playing those two lines as sex jokes is just more modern than 1968, or if that was an intentional choice by... Franco Zeffirelli to to not mug too much and not play the comedy of it. it maybe I think that would also work better on stage mm-hmm. um, where you have a live audience to get a reaction from. Right. So I, I don't mind that, that those lines are played straight. I I like that it was played straight. It made their their naiveness and cutesiness all more cute. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think like them talking how they spoke really like hammers it in. Like these are kids. And I like that. I think that, that like, we need to understand that these characters are, are young idiots for the mm. story to work. Right. And I, I don't mind that. So then we meet the friar. Yes, Friar Lawrence. Friar Lawrence. Friar Larry. Who is dressed like a stereotypical friar. Friar Tuck. If you can picture a friar outfit, that's what he's wearing. Although he doesn't have the the weird hair thing where he's bald on the top. and That's right. He, he, has, he has a full head of hair. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is never addressed in Romeo and Juliet is why Romeo is friends with Friar Lawrence. Because he, like, runs to him after the balcony scene. He doesn't sleep. He just, like, finds him in the field. Uh, he has some introductory lines about um, the plants he's picking that'll be it'll be important later. It's a very Chekhov's gun, like, mm-hmm. oh, these flowers have an interesting effect. Hmm. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then Romeo runs in and is like, you gotta help me. I've met a lady. We kissed a couple times. It's time to get married. <laughs> She's not my enemy. Right. I gotta do Come on. Come on. Larry. <laughs> Why are Friar Lawrence and Romeo friends? <laughs> well, I think Friar Lawrence is kind of like a friend of all of the town. But it seems like they have like a playful, fun relationship because Friar Lawrence has some line about like, I think you have not been in bed tonight. <laughs> you know? Like clearly they they are friendly enough that they can make jokes with each other and they know each other a little bit. And that, and that Friar Lawrence is the one that Romeo ran to. Right. But it's very much the like Doc Brown and... What's his name from Back to the Future? The kid, the main character. Oh, Marty McFly. Marty McFly, you know, it's never explained. Why are these people friends? Why are these people friends? How did they meet, you know? A bowling league. Is Romeo a devout Catholic that goes to confession a lot? And when did that become a personal relationship, you know? I I want a prequel about that. Ooh, that'd be cool. So he's like, we have to get married immediately. Right. Friar Lawrence is like, of course, obviously. Maybe this will end the feud. Friar Lawrence kind of continually fails 
Romeo and Juliet, the main couple. Like, I think this is probably the wrong thing to do mm. to get them married to each other. Right? I mean, obviously it doesn't work out well, and things only get more convoluted from here. I mean, ultimately it does end the feud. It's just not in the way that he thought. Yeah. I think that Friar Lawrence is like the Dumbledore of this series, that he's just like, he seems like a well-meaning adult, and then you look at the things he does, and you're like, oh, actually, maybe you're not a good guy. Well, especially that sec- well, that second thing that he does with Juliet and the the sleeping thing. Yeah. It's like, it, he, he it, actually had a plan. It's just... It's just an insane plan. Well, no, the donkey just didn't get there fast enough to deliver Romeo the note. <laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> So the the next thing is the like is the Mercutio's a dick scene, basically. And I've seen this scene played different ways. Because sometimes it's played like like playful and fun, but like Mercutio seems mad that Romeo gave them the slip and did God knows what last night, and he you know, really messes with uh the nurse when she comes to um deliver Juliet's message to Romeo right. in a way that is like that is unpleasant and I've seen that scene played as like a, f- a fun thing where like she's kind of in on the joke and is having a good time and this is not quite that. Mm-hmm. You know, like he is being unpleasant to an old woman for no particular reason. Right. Because he just feels like being a dink. I would like to see a Mercutio that's fun and good. I think we probably will. But yeah, this one was not... Uh, yeah. Not a nice guy. Not a nice guy. So, you know, at least in this production, the nurse, like, recovers and is joyful about the making the love match between Romeo and Juliet. Which is nice to see. Which is nice to see. She, it's, uh, I still love her. She's so fun. She's very fun. She has a lot of, like, little little fun bits. Um, she gets excited about things, and, mm-hmm. you know. So that's always cute. And then, obviously, we have a wedding. Like, they get married. And we have the secret wedding. I genuinely forgot that the wedding happens so soon. Yeah. It's, it's the day after they meet. <laughs> Well, even then, like, it's halfway through the play. Like, there's so much... Oh, yeah. In the movie, there's an intermission right after the wedding, which is wild, because I feel like intermission should be after, like, some conflict or something, you know, so that the audience is like, oh, we can come back. But you could leave after the after the wedding and be like... Everything's for, fine. Good for those kids. They did it. Everything's <laughs> they, fine. They got they fell in love in one day and got married the next. Apparently, the Italian story that, that Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, is based on takes place over multiple months instead mm. of over, like, four days. And I wonder if that's a like Aristotle's poetics thing about trying to like have a unity of time and have things go quicker, or just just or maybe Shakespeare's just illustrating the fact that they're so young and so horny. Right. Well, also like there was nothing. They didn't have TV. They didn't have any like other things. Like what were they doing? Like those days must have been or felt long. You got to get married immediately. And I don't know if it's a dramatic convenience thing or if it's something about the time period. But I mean, there's a lot of plays where people get married without knowing each other very well. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know enough about the period to be like, this is a historical fact of the time that people got married quickly. It could just be that it's better for uh, drama. I mean, it was going to happen with Paris and Juliet. That's true. Although, although uh, at the beginning, because Paris is Juliet's, uh, Juliet's parents' choice to wed her. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, when Paris is like, I would like to marry your daughter, initially, Lord Capulet sort of, sort of like, She's still young, maybe wait a year or so, mm-hmm. which is where the the younger than her happy mother's maid line comes in. Um, so, but, but he even suggests like gain her favor, and then you know we'll talk in a, in a little while. Yeah, first, but everything changed. When everything changed. I don't know why everything changes. Well, after the intermission, we get the the scene in the square where Mercutio is kind of looking for a fight. We have to talk about this scene. We have. There's so much that happens here. There's so much that happens here that is, like, directorial intent. Mm. And I like a lot of what Zephyrly is doing here. I did too. So Mercutio is looking for a fight. He, he it's a, it's a very hot day. He's hanging out in a fountain. Hanging out in the fountain. <laughs> T- temperature is rising. So his tempers are rising. And Tybalt and his gang of jester-looking mm-hmm. men come in. And Tybalt's like, "Where's Romeo?" And Mercutio's like, I don't know, but you want to fight? <laughs> I mean, literally. <laughs> literally, yeah. And Tybalt's like, no, not with you. <laughs> I just want to talk with Romeo. <laughs> yeah. And then Mercutio's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, let's fight. And then they kind of do, they have like a playful fight. Yeah, it's funny because we get, you know, in, inherently in this in the play that there, there are 
basically two fights back to back. Or it can be played that way. It can also be played that there's one fight followed by a stabbing. Right. But we get two different, very different fights because the Mercutio Tybalt fight is playful and there's lots of like like bits and like. It's two men who are not intending to kill each other. They just right. want to. They're getting, they're letting off some steam. They're just having a fun time, right? And they both have like gangs of of their friends who are like watching and like jeering on and like enjoying the antics, like laughing. Mm-hmm. There's one moment where um, Mercutio loses his sword and gets ca- uh, uh, cornered. He gets canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does ultimately get canceled, I suppose, in the in the most permanent sense. Mm-hmm. But he gets cornered and he's lost his sword and he like starts whistling like like nothing's going on and everyone kind of laughs and then he like gets his sword back and they keep fighting and it's like you know, there's lots of like bits they're doing. Mm. But then Romeo gets there and he's like trying to pull him apart and Tybalt truly stabs Mercutio by accident. Right, because Romeo got in the way. Right, and he like like turned at the wrong. It's a weird moment. He like turns at the wrong time and hits him. And he looks horrified when he realizes that there's blood on his sword and just, like, books it, like, leaves. <clears throat> and we have the Mercutio dying scene, because he he has, the you know, this all these famous lines about, about um, look for me tomorrow and you shall find a grave man and, mm. and plague over both your houses and all those things. And the group thinks that he's joking. The group thinks that he's joking, that, that he is, like, playing at being hurt and that he's fine. And he's, like, trying to tell them that he's dying and he's, like is dying but they are all laughing and it's 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 a very like affecting moment mm-hmm. until he finally does collapse and then Romeo sees red metaphorically mm. and runs after Tybalt and then there's the second fight Romeo right. the Romeo Tybalt fight which is very different yeah totally i mean even at the beginning like before the fight was even going to happen Tybalt is kind of seemingly like i don't want to fight with you like i've already accidentally killed somebody i don't want to fight anymore and then Romeo kind of stuffs a bloody handkerchief in Tybalt's face. Yeah, and it's like, look what you did. We have to fight about this now. And I feel like I've seen versions of this fight where either it's just like one quick, like, I'm mad and I'm going to stab you in the heat of the moment, and then I'll be horrified that I've stabbed you. Or even like, we're going to have a real sword fight. And this is not really quite that either. It seems like Romeo is not good at sword fighting, but is holding his own. It's mm-hmm. kind of the vibe. Like yeah. he's he's shaky and he's not quite sure what he's doing, but he is like holding back Tybalt, who again probably doesn't want to kill him. Also, right. And but it's also like it's messy. Like they both lose their swords. They roll around in the dirt. They get their swords back. Their men are like pushing each other so that they can give us a, a sword, another sword to them. Right. Yeah. They both get really dirty, um, and it's it's really different from the other fight, which I like because if you're gonna have two fights back to back, they should be really different. At one point, they're just uh, punching each other. Right. Totally. And Romeo, being a star-crossed lover, eventually kills Tybalt. Right. And it surprises both of them. I think. And I think that's when he says, oh, I am Fortune's fool. Yeah. Right? The way that they've cut the dialogue allows a lot of quick, like, transitions. So we, like, cut immediately to the nurse telling Juliet what's happened. We kind of meet them mid-scene. Because mm-hmm. in the play, it's the mother that says it. Oh, is it? Yeah. It's been a while. And I forget who has the line, but someone points out that it's been, like, three hours since they got married. <laughs> <laughs> so Romeo... Gets married, mm-hmm. and then three hours later, kills her cousin, her brother. I think cousin. Her brother. <laughs> and she's like, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> and the nurse is all mad. She's like, you know, screw this guy. And Juliet's like, no, wait a minute. That's my husband you're talking she's about. She's like, screw this guy. I could, I could do that. Later I will. <laughs> <laughs> and then Romeo's just, you know, being a sad boy in Friar Lawrence's house. He's lying on the floor throwing a temper tantrum, basically. Yeah. Ba- ba- yeah. Which is funny. <laughs> <laughs> the nurse comes and is like, yeah, Juliet's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. They could be lying on the, fl- on the floor together. Right. And that's what basically Friar Lawrence says. is like, just go be with her for one more night before you're banished. Yeah. I don't know how exile works, because what the prince says is next time he's seen, he'll be put to death. Mm. He has to get out of town. But he's like, well, if it's nighttime, they can't see me. Right. I guess. So they consummate the wedding. Mm-hmm. Well, before that, both of the bodies of Mercutio and... Tybalt. Tybalt are brought in front of the prince. Oh, and, and he exiles Romeo. He exiles Romeo, yeah. and the, the prince trusts Benvolio more than anybody else. He's like, Benny boy, what happened? <laughs> And Benvolio is just like, well, Tybalt started it. Right. Well, and yeah, and be- because it seems like Romeo killed Tybalt out of revenge for killing Mercutio, he gets 
Romeo gets banished instead of put to death. Right. Which is a kindness. Yeah. And Romeo's like, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. And Friar Lawrence is like, you could be dead, buddy. You could be dead. Yeah, I like I like Friar Lawrence's speech here. The the there are that not happy thing. Where he's basically like, things could be worse. <laughs> Cheer up. Which is not a great message. I just I've always liked the speech. I don't know why. <laughs> okay, so we cut to the next morning. The scene that <laughs> Romeo and Juliet naked in bed together. That Olivia Hussey supposedly couldn't see, but she did. But she right, but she could because she was sixty when the movie came out, and it made me wonder what contraception existed at this time, if any. Probably none. I mean, they must have. Had, I feel like contraception is pretty old. I feel like people have been finding ways to have safe sex historically. Maybe, but who knows? Who knows? It doesn't really matter in the context of the story, I suppose. No, it does not. <laughs> so, Romeo leaves for Mantua. For Mantua, yeah. Yeah. We have to talk about Mantua, but some other things happen first. <laughs> and Juliet's crying, and the mom's like, I know, Tibble, right? <laughs> yeah, aren't you sad about Tibble? And, like, she should be sad about Tibble. Like, that is a, that's a good point. This, this movie made me... <laughs> really think that Juliet was like I really don't care about Tybalt <laughs> it does seem that way it, it seems she's not that, that way. affected by it she's it's, more like what happened to Romeo not to talk about West Side Story too much before we get there but like I appreciate in those the original West Side Story movie that we have a very brief scene of Tony arriving at her bedroom on the wedding night and she's like upset that he uh, killed oh god what's his name in the West Side Story Bernardo Bernardo and like we see the transition from her be- being mad at him for that to being like grateful to be able to hold him and I think that's an interesting yeah. like moment and we don't really get that here she's upset more that Romeo was involved than she is that T- Tybalt is dead we don't even get a scene between Tybalt and Juliet no they may not have met at all maybe they don't know each other <laughs> <laughs> um, they see each other at Thanksgiving right exactly <laughs> it's a big house yeah so but her mother is like god I know you're sad maybe you should get married about it <laughs> What if you got married to Paris, like, now, uh, instead, like, tomorrow, or, so, or like, in three days, or something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's very upset about this, because, obviously... Um, she's already married. She's already married. And she's 13, so I can't really fault her for not having the guile to be like, mm, yeah, that's good, that's fine. I, I, th- I think the problem is she's already married. Definitely, but, like, obviously no one can know she's already married, because he's a political... Uh, refuge now. Well, yeah. So she throws a fit. Her father yells at her, and then the nurse is like, "You probably should just marry Paris." And then the best acting moment in the entire film, with Olivia Hussey just looking betrayed mm-hmm. at the nurse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I was talking about how Friar Lawrence fails them, but the nurse fails them too. The kind of all the adults fail them. And that's, I think, subtext of some other versions of the story is that, like, these are kids growing up in a world that was made unjust for them. Was right. made Was made unjustly for them. Um, adults suck. Adults suck. I think you feel that here. I think she's upset about, about all the adults in her life. Except for one, because she runs to Fire Lawrence and is like, you have got to solve this. This is, <laughs> this is not a me problem. Uh, and he's like, here's a convoluted plan. I have I have a drug here, which you will take, which will make it seem like you're dead, but you'll be asleep. And uh, then... I'm going to put you inside a box. And then I'm going to put you inside another box. And I'm going to mail that box to me. And then when it arrives, I'll, I'll smash, smash it, it with, with a hammer. hammer. Or to save on postage, we can just pretend you're dead. And we'll sit by the graveside. <laughs> and we'll send Romeo a letter telling him that you're, that you're not dead. And then uh, we can get you away to Mantua as well. Yeah. Simple plan. It's a little much. It's... No. I it's mean, it's a simple plan. I get that her parents would be upset if she just went to Mantua, if she just disappeared and ran away. But, like, couldn't she just run away to Mantua? Also, next time they have a funeral, wouldn't they know that a body is missing? <laughs> well, that's a that's a problem that Franco Zeffirelli introduces, I suppose, because um, he makes the choice that, that all the Montague, sorry, the Capulet corpses share the same crypt. So, mm-hmm. like, the, the corpse of Tybalt is also there. In the crypt. Isn't how it is? That is from his family? Rich I, families? Uh, probably. Yeah, I think so. In that time period? But... I've seen the Haunted Mansion. I, <laughs> I, I know. Right, that is a historical document, basically. But I think a lot of like film adaptations of this story are like put her in a place where she's the only corpse. Mm. Quote-unquote corpse. For the, for this, for cinematic right. qualities. I like Tybalt being there, though. It's interesting. It is interesting. So, she takes a potion. Oh, also, like, for Lawrence 
uh, mixes it live. He like well, like in front of her, like puts start starts putting stuff together. Even though at the be- they've cut the scene where he's like this this one flower does this one weird thing, but he's like mixing different ingredients while talking to her, and it does not seem very precise. Mm-hmm. She has a a scene which is cut from this movie where she expresses doubt about taking the potion right before she does, mm. where she's like, God, could Friar Lawrence have like poisoned me just to solve the the his problem another way? Like, could he be deceiving me before she eventually takes it? Which is missing here, but also like, I think about it every time. It was like that, you know. That there's a reason to have those doubts, right? But she drinks the potion. But she drinks the potion. She goes into her deep sleep. Right, screaming in the morning and so on. Very and so much on. screaming in the morning. The only time the parents really care, care. <laughs> it seems like. Yes. Yeah. We're not really pro capulet. We never see the Montagues unless they're fighting too. Right. Or they're going Montague. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, we really never meet Romeo's family, do we? No. I wonder if that, that'll be true in other adaptations. Uh, I can confirm, Romeo and Juliet, we meet the family. Okay. Okay. Uh, I've not seen Romeo and Juliet, but we will get there. Friar Lawrence... <laughs> sends a letter. Sends a letter to Mantua to Romeo, which he gives to uh, Friar John, who uh, is going to Mantua with a mail sack in general, it seems like. Uh, on on a, on a donkey, which would be fine if it weren't for the fact that Romeo's servant Balthazar sees Juliet getting loaded into the crypt. Probably not loaded in. What's the term? <laughs> <laughs> I'm too much of a theater person. Loaded. No, she's loaded in. She's loaded into the crypt, and is like Romeo has got to know this bad news immediately and gallops off on a horse, passing the donkey on the way. Which just makes you really think. Who knows about this wedding? <laughs> Lawrence? L- Lawrence and the nurse. And the nurse. Romeo and, and Juliet. Ba- and then Balthazar? I, I don't know if Balthazar... Well, he must know that he Juliet's important know. to Romeo, because he does this. Yeah. He yeah. has to know. And he's also there... He's the servant there in the morning when Romeo leaves for Mantua mm. with the horse. Right. In front of, I'm assuming, the Ju- the Capulet household. I get, yeah, it must be. So he must know that... Romeo spent the night, yeah, so to speak. His walk of shame to Mantua. I don't know much about Mantua historically, mm-hmm. but it just seems like an empty castle in this movie. Like, Romeo just seems like he's in a castle alone, mm-hmm. which isn't so bad. It isn't so bad at all. And it doesn't seem that far, honestly. It does not seem that far. Balthazar was able to get there in what? A hop, skip, and a jump? Meanwhile, that donkey is like still getting there. That donkey, to this day, legend has it. It's <laughs> still on the way to Mantua. It's still on its way to Mantua <laughs> with that letter. With that letter. So Romeo thinks Juliet is dead. Right. And somehow gets poisoned. There's no apothecary in this one. Nope. He just shows up with poison. Uh, he, yeah, they've, they've cut a bunch of things here. I mean, in the play, uh, Paris is guarding the grave, and Romeo murders him, which is unnecessary and makes Romeo less sympathetic, arguably. Um, That's not in here. Paris is really only in two scenes, this entire film. Yeah, he he briefly has a moment where he, when Juliet goes to the Fire Lawrence to be like, you gotta fix this, he's also there, and he's like, oh my god, we're gonna get married, so crazy to run into you here. God, I can't wait to marry oh, you. I love that you're such a penitent Christian. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I guess I am, bye. Um, uh, You know how Romeo and Juliet ends. Right. They both live happily ever after. No. <laughs> No. Uh, Romeo breaks open the door of the tomb with a rock, and then it swings open like it was open the whole time. <laughs> He's like, "Ugh, she's dead. I won't even wait a few minutes for there to for to confirm that she's dead. Because I guess why would you? Uh, right. He drinks poison at." her crypt side because he's dramatic and then he dies and then Friar Lawrence comes back and she wakes up and he's like we gotta get out of here and she's like oh my god where's Romeo and he's like we gotta get out of here and she's like oh my god Romeo <laughs> and, and then there's a commotion outside which we never figure out we never find out who I guess is. the commotion outside would be because Paris is dead or because the tomb's been broken open there's like a like a horse hanging out there with Balthazar right. Right, because the scene with Paris was was, filmed. Was filmed but cut, and the friar is like, let me fail you again for the last time. I I can't stay, there's a commotion. I gotta go. I gotta go. He runs away. Romeo stabs. Nope. Romeo, oh wait, sorry, no. Juliet, I can't keep track. These lovers keep dying. Um, (laughs) There's only two. I know. Uh, (laughs) Juliet is like, 
Ugh, I will kiss poison off your lips because I'm dramatic and I think everything needs to be very, very poetic. Uh, but it doesn't work, and she stabs herself, and the corpses are brought to the prince, and he's like, "This is terrible." The prince is like, "Y'all know this is your fault, right? Y'all know this is fault. Stop this stuff right now." Yeah, y'all did this, and then that, then then it ends. Yeah, and we get maybe like three lines of the epilogue. Yeah, not the whole epilogue. And then the rest of the credits is just the two families walking into a church together, hugging and yeah. coming together as a family. So so I guess we do get that, like... There's no statue mentioned. Yeah, but I guess we do get the, like, the feud is going to end yeah. thing. Not so explicitly, but it definitely is more about the, like, what a sad romance. And not a, like, a, maybe the world will be a better place for the next generation story. Star-crossed lovers. Starbucks cross lovers. So that's Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Like, even with its cuts... It's a solid movie. It's a solid, solid adaptation. Yeah, and I think I think you're right that it is an adaptation, and not just Romeo and Juliet. It's only going to get weirder from here. <sighs> yes. We're, uh, we're going in some directions. Some directions that I do not agree with. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah. And we're excited to take you along with us. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a fun journey this season. And of course, a format change, which is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a format change. We're not doing um, uh, story pitches anymore. We're just putting them in the series. Yeah. Some of the, our main adaptations are story pitches. And no secrets. We're going to tell you what we're doing next episode. Yeah. No secrets. So join us again. In two weeks' time. When we'll be watching... The Lion King 2. I'm excited for this one. It, it has some bops. I'm ready for the bops. There's gonna be a lot. There's gonna be a lot of questions. I feel. <gasps> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye now. For never was there a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo.